Welcome to Kevin Condor's podcast. This series is on the Tabernacle of David, based on Kevin's best-selling book by the same title. It's available in paperback and e-back formats from Amazon in your area, or as an immediate PDF download from the shop at kevinconnor.org. Finally, the ongoing impact of Kevin's ministry is only possible because of the generosity of friends and supporters like you. Why not consider making a donation today at kevinconnor.org forward slash donate. Thanks very much. I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to the reading that I want to share with you, a few verses from, first of all, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and then back to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, okay? 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and then uh, back to 2, Chronicle, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, we've been sharing together in the last number of weeks uh, a series on the Tabernacle of David, and how many feel that you're coming into great understanding of the ministry of praise and worship in the house of the Lord. Can you say amen? Uh, next Sunday is going to be a very important Sunday. We're going to be uh, wrapping up on our series together. So next Sunday is a very important Sunday when we deal with the Tabernacle of David and the order of worship that was established there. And we trust that we'll have a, uh, a further extension of worship and Tabernacle of David worship next Sunday. The following Sunday, I'm going to be speaking down at Richmond Temple, Assemblies of God, and Mark will be taking a session on music. Okay, so that's uh, for the next couple of Sundays. All right, First Chronicles chapter 15, and I just want to read a few uh, verses here and there, only because of our time again. I see somebody older the clock because it was 20 past 10, and Pierre said, I've got two hours to speak. Uh, but I think he rejoiced that somebody older the clock, so I have about uh, 38 minutes. <clears throat> All right, First Chronicles chapter 15, and uh, picking up in verse 1 from the New King James, Translation, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No man may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Down to verse 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiah for the priests and for the Levites, uh, for Uriel, Asariah, Joel, Shemaniah, uh, Eliel, and uh, Minadab. Then he said uh, to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify or consecrate yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Everybody say, the proper order. The proper order. The King James says the due order, or the proper order. Some other translations say regarding the ordinances, but the proper order. So let's all say it again. The proper order. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel and the children of the, Levi, uh, children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses, Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Down to chapter 16 and the first three verses. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that who had erected for it? David. All say it? David. In the midst of the tabernacle, not that Moses had pitched for it or erected for it, but in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God, 
And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. All right, let's go over to 2 Samuel chapter 6 just for the corresponding verses. Second Samuel chapter 6 and the corresponding verses. We'll pick up in verse 13. Second Samuel chapter 6 and verse 13. And it was so when those bearing the ark of the, of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she got the glory and said, Hallelujah, what a great meeting this is. She despised him in her heart, and so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in, in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed everyone to his house. May the Lord bless that word to our hearts this morning. I want to finish on what we've been covering the last number of weeks and then next uh, week is going to be very important time on the Tabernacle of David on the order of worship and then the following week Mark will be sharing on music. Last week we took the time to look at the Ark of the Covenant and the significance of the Ark of the Covenant and without taking time to review, if you were not here last Sunday, we'd like to encourage you to buy the tape from the tape room as we spent the whole of the morning on the significance of the ark. And the reason we did that, as we've seen in our several Sundays before, is that for years the ark of the covenant had been in the tabernacle of Moses and the whole order of worship that was established there. And now in David's time, God is about to do a new thing. And as we said last Sunday, once the Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the Tabernacle of Moses, which we need to touch on this morning, and then in its uh, transitionary period, uh, in those chapters that I had you read this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6, in its transitionary period, it eventually was placed in the Tabernacle of David, as we have here. So the Ark of the Covenant, and then eventually it was taken into the Tabernacle of David and placed there. And then it was there for about 30 years or more, and eventually it was uh, taken into the Temple of Solomon. Now, we looked at the tabernacle of uh, the Ark of the Covenant last week, number of significances about it, but just to, uh, sort of summarize so that we need to cover what we need to this morning. We saw that the symbolic truth of the Ark of the Covenant represented what? Basically, the what? Say it with me. The presence and the glory of God in the midst of his people. So let's all say that. So the Ark of the Covenant symbolically represented the presence and glory of God in the midst of his people. Okay, really important. Take the Ark of the Covenant away, there was no presence, there was no glory. So the bloodstained mercy seat, the cherubim, the presence of God, between those cherubim, the things that we sing about, 
and God speaking from out of the bloodstained mercy seat and off the mercy seat and out from the blazing glory, yeah, a visible manifestation of the presence and glory of God. And so that's what is symbolized. Now we said as we finished our message last week that uh, all that the Ark of the Covenant represented is now fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer have an oblong box overlaid with gold, cherubims and the bloodstained mercy seat with animal blood on. The Lord Jesus Christ is the presence and the glory of God in the midst of the people. How do we know that? Because in Matthew 18 verse 20 he said, Where? Where? Where two or three are gathered together, drawn together, harmonized, symphonized, uh, drawn together in whose name? My name, not any denominational name, but in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So Jesus Christ is the presence and the glory of God personified. How many believe he is in our midst this morning? How many believe he has been in our midst this morning? How many believe he is still in our midst this morning? How many know that when we finish singing praise and worship and songs of the Lord and exhortations and I get up to preach that the Lord doesn't go home? How many know that? So he hasn't gone out the door. Say, oh, well, I'm leaving the meeting now. Kevin's getting up to preach. He is still here. Do you believe it this morning? And as we minister the word, and God can just touch hearts and lives as we minister the word of God because it's Christ ministering through his word to us this morning. Now, I hope I don't shock you this morning as we introduce what we're going to share. How many people here this morning have uh, seen that film or the video Raiders of the Lost Ark? Hands up. Just keep your hands up. Just want to keep them. Come on, some of you, have, I saw Peter, just snuck his up. All right. Keep your hands up, I just want to look around. Hallelujah. My, 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 look at this. All right, you can put your hands down. Thank you very much. You see, I had both my hands up. Now, a number of months back when I was overseas, I think it was, Mark uh, videoed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, of course, when I got... <laughs> Is that right, son? And, of course, when I came back, we were trying to have a family night. He said, Dad, you ought to see these Raiders of the Lost Ark. I said, well, why, son? He said, well, it's got the Ark of the Covenant in. And, of course, <laughs> if it's got the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, that justified me watching it <laughs> to check it out. Is that right? Is that the truth? It's not the truth. Well, I'm telling you the truth. I mean, it gave me an excuse. Is that the truth? All right, those of you who haven't watched it, I don't want to encourage you, but you might learn something, but you never know. So now, briefly the story. I want to get into the Bible, but I, I need to do this to get your attention. Raiders of the Lost Dark. And so I checked it a couple of times to see if it was scriptural. <laughs> My wife asked me how I was going to approach this today. I didn't tell her this bit. thought it's safe up here. Well, uh, as I understand the story, and I'm not too brilliant on, on videos, am I, Mark? True. I, you know, I try to video something and it comes out blank or it goes backwards or it gets Donald Duck on it and it's just... And I have to phone Mark up and say, Mark, how do you work this? Well, you press this button. Then what do I do? I press that button. Well, pull this one over. It's just, uh, it's just, I'm just out of the dark ages. It's just too much for me. 
So, uh, as I understand the story, there's uh, these two archaeologists, and uh, David still tells me that an archaeologist is one crackpot looking for another crackpot. <laughs> so, they've heard about this lost Hebrew Ark of the Covenant, and they want to discover it. So, they go over to where the Ark is traditionally supposed to be hidden, and uh, during the course of the story, and I, don't, I want to get into the Bible, so it's all right, this is the introduction. Uh, uh, during the, the course of looking for the ark in different places, it was eventually discovered by one of these guys, and uh, so there was a German there and a British uh, archaeologist, and of course a Hebrew, it makes quite a story, German, uh, British, and now Hebrew, the Jews. Hebrew story, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, eventually, after a lot of conflict and exchanging hands and everything like that, they stick the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't this exciting? Hey? Oh, can you see it? Oh, come on, come on. You know. <laughs> help me. I want you people to help me this morning. And so they stick the Ark of the Covenant in this big crate, and on our, outside the crate, as it's put on the ship, or wherever it was going to, it has this swastika. Well, the part I got blessed with, got your attention now, have I? Okay. The part I got blessed with was, as soon as they put the Ark of the Covenant inside the crate, it was, there was enough of the glory still there that it just burnt the swastika off. It just went pssst. And Because in case you didn't know, swastikas are broken crosses on the four sides. Oh, did you know that? The broken cross broken on four sides. Like the peace symbol. Anyway, but that's not the message. So that's an interesting message. On the broken crosses today. Well... Eventually, the ark was taken to a special place in the hills to be opened. This is me now. To see its contents and see if the two tables of the stony law were still there. The man and the woman, I can't remember their name, they were tied up on the hill to a post here, back to back, and uh, as uh, these other fellows opening the ark. And after uncreating the ark, the Chinese gentleman, how many remember the Chinese gentleman? In absolute delight, this is what I'm writing out on my computer last night, lifts the lid, the cherubim mercy seat, off the ark. And with fiendish laughter, he puts his hands into the ark of the covenant to lift the two tables of stone, but find that all has turned to sand. Then all of a sudden, flashes of lightning and thunder begin. Eerie blue and gold flames of light go dashing around the camp. Terror strikes the soldiers and the archaeologists. The man and the woman up on the hill, they say, close your eyes, don't look. They close their eyes tight so as not to look at the flashes of flame coming forth from the ark of God. Soldiers are standing there, they're struck dead, they fall over by the curling, whirling, flashing flames of fire. When the flaming light hits the Chinese gentleman, his eyes just melt in their sockets and blood pours out from his eyes, his ears and his mouth. This tape is not for sale. <laughs> the only two remaining alive as the glory disappears into the ark are the man and the woman on the hill, who, and they weren't Christians, by the way, who dared not to presume to look at the ark of God and its blazing judgments. It's quite a story, isn't it? But it's nothing compared to what I would like to tell you this morning. Was that a good introduction? Mark says I need an older call. 
Well, let me tell you what. In the Bible story of the Ark of the Covenant, it is just and more exciting than what I just told you about on that corruption, the Bible story. Now, let me just tell it in story form as I've been trying to do all those chapters. The Ark of the Covenant, when they came into the land of Canaan, the tabernacle of the Lord was pitched at a place called Shiloh. I'm just going to tell it in story form, all these chapters. And for years it was at the place called Shiloh. Over the years, the nation of Israel backslid and uh, lapsed into times of apostasy, idolatry and lawlessness. And at the time that you read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 4, 5 and 6, actually all those chapters are involved, uh, the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of the Lord is at Shiloh, Ark of the Covenant is within the tent, and there's an old man by the name of Eli, and he has two sons who are his priests. And they are priests at God's altar, but they are sons of Belial at the tent door. For as you read in those chapters, now you missed that chapter, as the women came to worship, we find that they were fornicators, laid with the women who came to the tabernacle of the Lord. So while they are priests at God's altar, they are sons of Belial at the tent door, fornicating and yet acting there in the so-called presence of God. Well, what happens, God allows the Philistines, the Philistines, Philistines, to come against Israel because of their apostasy and idolatry. And so there's a tremendous battle on. And the result is in the battle, thousands of the Israelites are slain. So what happens? In the midst of all that, the uh, Israelites say, hey, I'll tell you what. Remember how God used to deliver us when we had the Ark of the Covenant, when we crossed through Jordan and the waters of the Jordan rolled back and we crossed over? Remember when we had the Ark of the Covenant and we marched around Jericho seven times and the walls fell flat and the Jerichoites were killed? Why don't we get the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it to us instead of him? Him had become it in superstitious idolatry. Let's bring it to us. When it comes to us, it may save us. And so they send off the news to Shiloh and say to Hophni and Phinehas, these two backslidden, fornicating priests, get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to us in the battle. Maybe God will save us. And so what do these uh, Phinehas and Hophni do? They rush, and, and, and listen, there's so many things here, and I just have to move fast in story form here. Uh, because it's preparatory for next Sunday on divine order, okay, and order in the meetings and so forth. So what do they do, these two guys, Hophni and Phineas? They rush within the veil. They throw aside the curtain. They don't worry about Day of Atonement ceremonies and putting the blood on the, on the cherubim mercy seat because nobody was to go within the veil except on the Day of Atonement. And, and when they did, they must sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Who cares about that? So these two guys rush in there, grab the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and they didn't realize that they were on their way to their own funeral. And as they're carrying the Ark on their shoulders, tearing off into the battle, as soon as the people see the Ark of the Covenant coming, all Israel shouting with a great shout, and so great was the shout that the, 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 the ground just trembled. And the Philistines got scared to death. They said, what is this? They said, oh, this is the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. Remember what God did to the Egyptians and the plagues that happened down in Egypt? Remember how he opened up the Red Sea? Remember how he opened up Jordan? Remember how they marched around Jericho? This is the gods of the Israel. We've got to really fight. And so 
They said, let's quit us and let's strengthen ourselves and fight like men. And so all the Philistines fought. Now, as you read in those stories, what happened? Thousands, I think 34,000, covering so much material here, about 34,000 Israelites were slain in the battle. And so what happens? In the, the worst thing that ever happened in Israel's history was that the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence and glory of God, fell into the hands of the Philistines. And so what happens? A guy runs from the battle from the tribe of Benjamin, runs back to Shiloh. He's shaking the people of frightened. They say, what's going on here? What's happened? And I said, Phineas has been slain, Hophni and Phineas. Not the Phineas we have here. Where are you, Phineas? You just stay alive for us. We want you, okay. See, but Hophni and Phineas, they're killed. And the ark of God is taken in battle. And here's Eli, an old man about 90 years of age, and I better not demonstrate this too much. He's sitting on his seat by a stool there and it says his heart trembled for the ark of God. He wasn't worried about his sons too much. He knew what bunch of devils they were and failed to discipline his sons who were priests at God's altar, as I said, and fornicators with the girls at the tent door. And he's sitting there and as soon as the man comes running, he says, what's happened? What's happened? What's happened? About 34,000 Israelites are being killed. Your two sons are dead. But the worst thing, the ark of God has been taken. And I believe the Bible uses literal and yet symbolic language it says he was an old man and he fell backwards but he was already backslidden in heart his eyes were dim physically and spiritually he had no discernment of what was going on in the nation he fell backwards broke his neck and died and then when uh, his, uh, his daughter-in-law Phineas's wife Mrs Phineas soon as she hears the news she's about to have a baby and so she goes into labor travail and pains and the baby's born and the midwife is saying, oh, cheer up, you've just had a son. And she said, I'm not interested. Just call his name Ichabod, 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 Ichabod. The glory is departed, the glory is departed. Where is the glory? There is no glory. I remember somebody in Indonesia, they didn't know how to say Ichabod, they said Shishkabob. <laughs> well, there is a difference. Shishkabob is what you eat, not Ichabod. And so... This little kid's running around here. What's your name, son? My name's Ichabod. Ichabod, there's no glory. The glory's departed. And we're sorry to say, we have to write over some churches today, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Oh, we carry on the form. Bells and smells and incense and nonsense and devotion and motion this side of the ocean and go through all the external form. But there's nothing on the inside. We've said it before, we've got to be real people, real with God and not wear the mask or be hypocrites but practice what we preach right? and not be one thing behind the pulpit and live like the devil behind the scenes. No wonder the glory is not there. We can have professionalism, the whole lot. And I don't want professionalism. We want the touch of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what gives life. Skill alone will kill. But we want the touch of the Spirit that gives life with the skill. Amen? And so here, death. So what happens? So here's Eli, he's dead. He's off the infinities. They're dead. I mean, raiders of the lost ark have got nothing on this. Why didn't they stick to the Bible a little bit? I could have told them a little bit. Made it exciting. Don't you think you could have? And here's this little baby kid running around. Ichabod, Ichabod, Ichabod. The glory's apart. There's no glory. The glory's gone. What a wonderful name. What's your name, son? The glory is departed. Oh, get rid of that brat. Don't like him in my church. 
Well, now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, at the uh, Philistines, what's happening? The Philistines, they grab this box. Oh, after all, you know, it's only a bit of wood overlaid with gold. It's only a symbol. It's only a type. There's nothing there. Don't worry about it. Why all this fuss over? What's kind of talking about? We'll talk to the Philistines. So they grab this box of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, with the tables of the law in it. And so they rush it into their little uh, temple for Dagon. Now, Dagon was the fish god. He had the face of a man and the body of a fish. And so they set the Ark of the Covenant in their temple. Well, overnight, God didn't say, that's only a bit of wood overlay with gold. That's only a symbol. It's only type. There's nothing in it. Don't make all this fuss about Old Testament stories. God didn't think that. Do you know what he did? He zapped Dagon and Dagon fell over on his face. Hallelujah. So in the morning, the the priests of, of, of Dagon come in and they sing, oh, the poor guy's fallen on his face. So they set Dagon up, the fishy god up. And then they go away. Then in the, in the night, what did God do? God zapped his head off in his hands. And when they came in in the morning, Dagon's not only fallen on his face, he's been beheaded, he's got his hands off. And I like what the King James says on this in the margin. It says, only the fishy part remained. And see, they got the message of something fishy about this whole thing. <laughs> so there's just the fishy part, a headless fish, no hands. <laughs> but you know what happened in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? When they came to rest Jesus, they said, Who are you after? He said, uh, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they fell backwards, just like Dagon did back there. And of course, they get scared to death. They say, oh, let's get rid of this box, this thing, you know. And so they shoot it off to some other Philistines and they're scared to death. They say, don't bring that thing with us. And so what did God do to them? He plagued them and, uh, and the new King James, the old King James says, mice. God sent first of all a plague of mice or a plague of rats. Big rats. Big rats. That long. And they just devoured the crops and just devastated the land. Then, then, the, then the Lord says, he judged them with emeralds. Well, I didn't know what emeralds was. I had to check it out, but it's tumors. In fact, the one, one suggests the bubonic plague. So thousands of Philistines. So at the next city they went to, they said, oh, let's get rid of this thing. Let's uh, uh, put this one on here just to help our minds here. Okay, so the ark was in Shiloh. It's captured at Ebenezer. Can you see that? And then it goes way down to Ashdod and set in uh, Dagon's temple. Then they shoot it off to Gath. Get rid of it. There's plagues there. There's rats. There's bubonic plague, there's tumors, and then they say, let's get it up to Ekron. So they send the ark up there. This thing is just too hot to handle, as those invaders of the lost ark found. And then they say, we can't, and they scream out, and thousands, it's just death, death, death. Oh, it's only a bit of gold, it's only a bit of wood, nothing in it, just a symbol, but God, but God. And God is going to teach respect and reverence and divine order for all that is symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. And when I think of what some of these men who do things spawned out of hell in that last temptation and what they do to our Ark of the Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, how many think that he's going to zap them? If you're alive to the coming of the Lord, First Thessalonians says that when Christ comes back, the heavens are going to roll back, he's going to come in flaming fire, and the glory of his Father, 
and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. And if that guy who wrote The Last Temptation is around, his eyeballs are going to melt in his sockets when he sees Jesus Christ, the sinless Christ, the Son of God, coming in flaming fire. And he's not going to take him into my millennial kingdom to give him the se a second chance to hear the gospel. I mean, you know that. When that last temptation blasphemes the sinlessness of Christ and makes him an adulterer, makes him guilty of all the things that he condemns and all the things he died on the cross for, my whole being rises against that thing. Can you say amen? Because he's touching the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ blazing glory. And listen, as I said the other night, when the, when the atomic bomb was dropped in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those who beheld the flash of light, their eyes melted in their sockets. That is nothing to when Jesus Christ comes back the second time in the glory of his Father and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this little bit of a thing did it, how much more will he, who is the Ark of the Covenant, do it? Aren't you glad that you belong to him? Hallelujah. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant up to Ekron, and these, they say, this thing's too hot to handle. So they get together with all the, the uh, lords of the Philistines and say, what are we going to do? Very interesting, the language. It says, what will we do to the Ark of the Covenant, and what will we do with the Ark of the Covenant? That's exactly what they said at the crucifixion. What will we do with Jesus, which is called Christ? Crucify him. What will we do to him? They said the same questions about him that they said about the ark because history is his story. History is his story. The history of the ark is his story. And so do you know what they do? They say, I'll tell you what we do. Let's make a new cart. And let's put the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel on this new cart and let's hitch up two uh, cows that have just carved and what we'll do, we'll put little uh, images of the, of the rats, five of them for the five Philistine lords and five um, um, uh, images of the tumours and boils that they've had and we'll make that a guilt offering or a trespass offering. They knew enough of the God of Israel to do this. And then what we'll do, we'll hitch these cows up behind the new cart with the Ark of the Covenant and see if it's the real God and the God of Israel that's been plaguing us. Well, look how marvellous this was. When these two cows are hitched up to the new cart, they've just carved, and you know how unnatural it is for cows to lead their newborn calves. And the Spirit of God moved on those dumb animals and those milch kind, or those two old cows, started to plod all their way to Bethshemus, back to the land of God, lowing as they went. They leave their two little calves there, yelling out for a milkshake, but they just keep moving on. The move is on. The ark is coming up the road. Hallelujah. And God unnaturally, supernaturally moves upon those animals. And they go up to Bethshemus. Well, as soon as the, as soon as the men of Bethshemus See, oh, there's the ark of God. The presence and the glory of God's coming back to Israel. It's been in captivity for months, months, seven months, I think it was. So when they do, when they see that, what do they do? They, listen to it. I can't say all the significance of this yet. They burn the new cart. Now, you might remember a couple of Sundays back, we read how David wanted to bring the ark of God 
into the tent, but he put it on a new cart, and God zapped him. Let me just say briefly, a new cart represents any religious gimmick that we use to try and bring the presence of God back into the church. And there are so many churches today, I'm sorry to say, resorting to new carts. And God may let the Philistines do it, but he won't let you do it. How many have heard that scriptures, scripture? Others may, you may not. God lets them get away with it, but he doesn't let us get away with it. No, the ark has got to be on the shoulders. The government shall be on his shoulders. Not on any Philistine new cart and worldly gimmicks and religious gimmicks and music that we bring into the church to try and get God moving for the young people. Are you listening to me, saints? Huh? Burn the new cart. So he burnt the new cart. They offered the old cows as a sacrifice. And then, of course, it goes to the land. The ark of God is back. God moved unnaturally, supernaturally, contrary to nature upon those old cows. They left their calves back there and they just, without anybody whipping them and driving at them, whipping up the meeting, those old cows just come back to the land of Israel, back to the land of God. Well now, as the news went round, the men of Beth Shemesh says, wow, we've never ever seen the Ark of the Covenant. It's always been within the veil. We've never seen it. Only the high priest on the great day of atonement ever saw the ark. And when it was in journeys, God said it must be covered with the veil and with the badger skins and with a cloth of blue. Boy, curiosity. You know, saints, I'm trying to get across here that God is trying to teach us respect and reverence for divine things. Our children need to be taught respect and honour and reverence for divine things. Not make jokes of it all. Just muck around there. Our children have to be taught that. They need to be taught respect for the table of the Lord, water baptism, and the different ordinances of the church. Amen? Can you say amen? And so what do the men of Beth Shemesh do? If I remember, I was just going right through this, 50,070 of them lifted the lid of the ark and looked in the ark and God killed them. Zapped them right and left. Raiders of the lost ark, you got nothing compared to this. 50,000! Why? What's, what is God doing here? All right, now what was in the Ark of the Covenant, you remember? The Ten Commandments. Not like you see in the film. The Ten Commandments. And the law is a ministration of death. And what was on the, uh, above the Ten Commandments? What sort of a seat? Mercy seat. And what was on the mercy seat? Think of it. So when they wanted to look at the Ten Commandments, administration of death, they had to put aside the mercy seat. And once you put aside mercy, and we're thinking about that this morning, think about his goodness, think about his mercy. Once you put aside the mercy seat, what are you exposed to? The law, death, administration of death. And once you put aside the mercy seat, what was on the mercy seat again? Blood. You, so they had to put aside the blood, put aside the mercy seat, and once they did that, they were exposed to death. You see, it was the mercy seat with the blood on that covered the Ten Commandments. And if it didn't, saints, you and I wouldn't be alive. I'm glad for the blood of Jesus this morning. We've been exalting the blood so much in this place the last number of weeks and the mercy of God. Hallelujah. 50,000. So as the news goes round, Raiders of the Lost Ark, why didn't you pick up the story properly? Eli's dead. Hophni and Phineas are dead. We've got this little brat running around called Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory is departed. 
34,000 Israelites are dead, thousands here, 50,000, 70 men of the men of Bethlehem, Philistines plagued with rats and bubonic plague and tumours and boils. It's just death, death. Oh yes, but Kevin, it's only a bit of wood overlaid with gold. There's nothing in it. It's only, it's only a symbol. Tell it to the Philistines. Tell it to the Israelites. Oh, it's what it represented before God. That's the thing, what it represented before God. Now, why have I said all that? I want you to go just for our last few moments here back to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. How many think that would have been a good film and that maybe they should have asked the church to help them on it and do it the Bible way? Go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 just for our last few moments here. Now, as we read in a previous Sunday, after David came to uh, the throne, he had such a heart for the ark of God. In fact, go back to 1 Chronicles uh, 13, just for a verse there. In verse 3, listen to what David said, after he talked with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader, so he gets the leadership together. And he says in verse 3, And let us bring the ark of God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Think of it. The Saul who had had the anointing had lost it. The Saul leadership who started throwing javelins at David because he didn't like the Davidic move of God. The Saul representing old order Pentecostalism that has lost the anointing. And all that Saul's leadership degenerated into. It's heavy duty. And now David says, let's bring the ark. And so what do they do? Do you remember the verses? David puts it on a new cart. And in the midst of it, they're playing music, the harps, the stringed instruments, the tambourines, the timbrels, the cymbals and trumpets. And here it is on the new cart with the oxen. And as the oxen are coming along, they stumbled. And as he put forth his hand to touch the ark, said, oh, we've got to steady things around here. The meeting's getting out of order. The ark's likely to get out of order here. We've got to stop it and bring it into order. God zapped him. Now, why did God do that? Why did God let the Philistines put the ark on a new cart and supernaturally overrode the nature of the animals so they didn't stumble and nobody was there to drive them? But when David did it on a new cart, God let the oxen stumble and death. So David said, what do I do? So even the people of God have got to learn some order. Well, in the meantime, the ark was taken into a home meeting and God blessed the home meeting of Obed-Edom. I think it's quite significant in our day that God has raised up so many home meetings. Presence of God. As I said last week, praise God for the home meetings, but the home meeting was not the ultimate. And Obed-Edom could have said, hey, this is my home meeting, and I've got the ark of God here, you guys just split. No, he said, okay, I realize home meeting, but ark's got to have its proper place. And so David went back to the word of God and began to seek the Lord. And so verse 13 of chapter 15, just as we wrap up here, a few thoughts. For because you did not do it the first time, 
The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the due order or the proper order. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts on this and then we have to pick it up next Sunday. I believe God is a God of order, don't you? We see order in creation. God worked six days and how he just had order in the creation, day one for day three, day two for day four, day three for day six, seventh day rest, all the order in creation. Snowflakes, blades of grass, the universe, the plants, everything. God is a God of order. God is not only a God of order in redemption, but he's also a God of, uh, in, in creation, pardon me, he's also a God of order in redemption. And when you come to Paul's writings, as well as the Old Testament, in the brazen altar, the sacrifice, it says, and it uses this word, cut the sacrifice and let the sacrifices be placed on the altar in order. When the golden candlestick, the seven lamps were lit, they had to be lit in a proper order. God is a God of order. When the table of showbread was established, it was called the bread of order. There must be order at the Lord's table. There was ordering. The, uh, the showbread had to be set in order upon the table, the bread of order, the bread of arrangement. When uh, the order of worshippers and singers, as we're going to see, was established, they were set in their proper order. There was a divine order there. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, when you come to the New Testament, we have the same thought in the resurrection. Paul says that every man, or, uh, or, uh, as I say, in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. So in the resurrection, there's going to be order, Christ the firstfruits, and then the saints are going to be raised in their orders in resurrection. Everybody's just going to pop up and say, here I am. Now there's one glory of the moon, one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. And as the stars differ from one another in glory, so also is the resurrection of the saints. Some saints will pop up with sun glory, some with moon glory, some will pop up with star glory, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We determine what glory we come up in the resurrection saints. Did you know that? So there's order in the resurrections. Why does God demand order? When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, this disorder over the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. Some are speaking in tongues, no interpretation. Some are take, uh, talking in tongues all at the same time. There's disorder with the gifts of the Spirit. There's disorder with prophecy. And then he says, there's disorder at the Lord's table. Some are being drunk. And he said, when you come to the Lord's table, this is not a meal at home. Haven't you got homes? Eat and drink at home. Don't come here at the church and get drunk. And he says, the rest will I set in order. When I come, there must be order at the Lord's table. And as you go through Paul's epistles and his uh, beautiful verse to the, to the Colossian church, he says, I want to tell you, saints, he said, even though I'm not with you, he said, I rejoice and joy with you as I behold your order in the meetings and the gathering of the saints. And so, saints, as we move further on in God and uh, the Lord teaches on these whole areas, we sometimes people say, well, I, I appreciated uh, a new member in the church here and said, Kevin... I'm just new in the church here. But one thing I appreciate about Waverley was just the order and the flow that's in the services. And so we need to learn more about order. What about the song of the Lord? What about prophecy? When is it time for an exhortation? Or do we cut the flow of the meeting? Or somebody comes up with a prophecy and yet the meeting's been flowing this way? 
or word of wisdom, or word of knowledge, exhortation, whatever functions. So everything should flow because I believe God has a purpose for every meeting, don't you? And God has divine order in the church. And so God was teaching them through this whole thing respect and reverence for the things of God and that everything must be done in a proper order. That's God is a God of order. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.